Verse 16. What the Lord has to say to us this morning. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night is either day nor night do one eye see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the time that uh, we've been able to spend in Ecclesiastes. We thank you for this journey that uh, you've allowed for us to look into and to be on as we watch a read about Solomon and his pursuit of meaning and what he found, his pursuit of purpose and value for life lived under the sun and what he saw, and what he found, and then his conclusions upon it. And we thank you that, that you've actually breathed these words out into him to write these things so that we might sit here this morning and glean some wisdom, hear your voice. And so, Lord, in order for that to be done, we recognize we absolutely need you. We need you to soften our hearts. We need you to give us those ears to hear. We need you to take your spirit and build convictions based upon your word, that we might have godly convictions, that we might have a biblical worldview, that we might seek to glorify you, that ultimately we might fear you as we seek to live out our lives, and that we might love you more and cherish this gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, so accomplish all of your good purposes in and through us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So Phil didn't give me permission to share this, but I'm going to share it. And he's here today. So Phil's been feeling a little under the weather, but you're better, obviously, right? Okay, so anyways, back when Phil, who was 64 years old, was in school, he had to walk uphill a mile 
both ways. Yeah, in the snow. You've heard that expression, right? Like, like to get to school was uphill, and it was always a mile, and it was always snowing, even in the summertime. It was a hard life, and he had to endure that. Chuck probably did as well. By, your, by the time you got there, it was probably just maybe three-quarters of a mile. But I share all that with you because when I was in school, I had to take a school bus. And sometimes I got to drive a car both ways. But here's where the struggle comes in. I did not have a phone, nor did I have the Google to show me how to get there. Okay? Okay. So there was a struggle. Phil had to walk uphill, and I had to do it without the Internet and without the Google and without that Apple map to show me how to get there. I just kind of had to endure and to suffer and to struggle to get to school and back. I share that with you because every generation sort of has its unique struggles. And I know those are sort of just funny little whatevers, but... It makes me think, like, what are are these kids going to say about their life? Like, how would you describe your struggle? Maybe it's probably going to include, I I had to get a ride with my mom, and I had to to listen to her tell me all that I had to do today as I went to school. And we have these helicopter parents. That might be part of their struggle. I don't know. Solomon also had his struggles. And we find him here in our text. And I feel like we find him here every Sunday that we're in this book of Ecclesiastes, watching him sort of struggle with the meaning of life, struggling to find out what is wisdom, where is wisdom, how does this wisdom help us, specifically in regards to wisdom that is defined as human wisdom, wisdom that's gained by living life apart from God, wisdom that's lived or gained by living life under the sun. And so it's through a lot of observations of just, I look at life, this is what I see. I do life, and this is what I experience. This appears to be the outcome every time this happens for the most part. And so we find him struggling again this morning with wisdom, human wisdom, and its limitations. Wisdom has answered a lot of his questions about life, but not all of them. And we know that because he's still writing. We're not done with this book yet. Wisdom has opened up his eyes to see the world for kind of what it really is. Wisdom has also brought him some serious frustrations with all that he is seeing. He sees it, and it seems like he sees it clearly. And what he sees, he doesn't necessarily like. I think we can all relate with that to some degree. The more he looked into life and saw how things worked, the, the more he struggled to make sense of everything he saw. And so he doubled backs, on, or he doubles back on certain things just to check to make sure he saw what he needed to see and if what he saw was really real. The reality is that there are limits to human wisdom. And, and by that I mean you just take a talking head who's sharing whatever it is they're sharing from a human perspective. And there's limits. They can only go so far. Even if it sounds really good and it really lines up with a lot of things, there's, there's a limit to it. There's things that they can't actually get their minds around. It can show us some really valuable things about life. Like hard work pays off for the most part. I think we'd all agree with that. 
but it will never lead us to God and an understanding that our life finds all its joys and is fully satisfied in Christ alone and that, and that we find hope and we find our purpose for life in Christ alone. Human wisdom will never lead us to that conclusion. Human wisdom cannot save us from God's wrath. Human wisdom does not bring us eternal life. This is what we find Solomon struggling with here in our text this morning. It seems the more he looked into these things from the world's perspective, the more he sort of just struggled to make sense with the world around him. And how I, I thought about this is it's kind of like making a to-do list each day. How many of you make a to-do list? Just a few. I, I highly recommend you do it. But listen, I do it, and it's so frustrating. I love it in the morning. I sit down there, and I just like, I just, everything that's coming into my head, I just, I write that thing down, and it, it just builds itself up. And then throughout the day, I just find myself going back to it. Even on my days off, it just sits on the counter and I come by and I cross off, and there's so much joy in crossing those things off. But guess what happens every day? There's always stuff left on that to-do list. And that to-do list grows. Every time I interact with somebody, it grows. There's always something being added to it. And so it's kind of like making a to-do list. You write something down, everything you got to get done, and you cross things out, and then all of a sudden, it shrinks, and then it grows again. There's, there's just a frustration because it seems like you never actually finish it all. And if you do, you just go to sleep and you wake up with more things to do. And so for Solomon, looking for the meaning of life has been kind of like this to-do list. Just when he thinks he's gotten somewhere, checked a few things off the list, it grows again. Another thought springs into his mind. He observes something else. He sees somebody do something. He experiences something that produces this experience or this feeling in him that doesn't fully satisfy. So then he goes back to the drawing board and puts something else on the list as he looks for the purpose of, of what in the world is he doing? What are we all doing? What are we giving our lives to? And so well, I think what he'd say, because we see him say this throughout this letter, is that it's been kind of like chasing the wind, like trying to capture something that, that you just can't capture. If you're just going to find, if you're just looking for answers to the purpose of your life and you're just looking for meaning and value for your life and all you ever do is look at human wisdom and you ignore God and all that God has to say, you're, you're going to be like Solomon in some ways where we find him frustrated because you're never going to find what you're looking for there. Those things only go so far. They have limits. And this is what I love about this book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book that has real life in it with real observations about real life that we all experience and we all struggle with. And, and we find Solomon struggling with this and just sharing his thoughts about it. And we know this to be God's word breathed out for us. We catch glimpses of God in this book, but more often than not, what we have is Solomon's journey, his journey with these struggles and limitations of life apart from God as he is sharing with us how he learned. This is where we get at the end, and he sort of hints at it throughout the book, but, but to get there, it's been a journey for him where he's learning 
And what he learned is to fear God and ultimately to obey God's commandments. But it's a journey. And that's what I love about this book. He could have just ended with chapter 12 and just said, hey, here's what I did. I I looked at life. I saw this stuff was worthless. It was a chasing after the wind. and, And this is the point of it. And I think we all would love that, right? We'd like it in the form of a tweet. Just like, just give me as simple as possible. Don't make me have to spend more than 15 seconds on it and I'm going to be good. But that's not how the Christian life works. It's a journey where we learn wisdom. We learn godly biblical wisdom over time through a right and real relationship with God. As we live life in a fallen world. Philip Ryken says this. This is how the Christian life works. It is not just about what we get at the end, but also what we become along the way. Discipleship is a journey and not merely a destination. I mean, you could take that and you just apply it to your own life. And and I think we'd all say, yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Today, you're probably in a place that you weren't at when you first started walking with the Lord. And you could also take that because I think parenting is discipleship. We're called to make disciples and and that that starts in our home and we have kids and we as parents sometimes forget this. And this is one of those quotes that probably needs to be on the counter somewhere. Just a reminder to us as moms and dads that discipleship's a journey. It's a journey. We're seeking to raise kids for the glory of God, seeking to sow seeds of the gospel into their life. But but the reality is we want it to be more about just sort of it it happening after I say one thing. We're, We're more concerned about the end sometimes than we do recognize the fact that it's a journey. We're okay with it being a journey for us. Recognize that it's taken 45 years for me to get to where I am today. But somehow when we think about our kids, we just say, no, by the time of six, they made that profession of faith, and maybe I'll give them a year. But when they hit 13 or when they get into high school, they got to be there. And what we're learning in Ecclesiastes is it's not kind of how it works. There's growth. Growth takes time. And discipleship's about a journey. And Solomon has allowed for us to join him on this journey. And it is a good journey. And what we see is there's struggles in this journey. There's struggles to understand. There's struggles to get our mind around. And, and there's struggles because there are real limitations that we have as God's people. There's limitations to worldly wisdom. It, it only goes so far. Never satisfied. If that's all you ever give yourself to, you're chasing the wind. You're chasing something that you'll never catch. But there's also limitations for us as men and women created in the image of God. Because we're not God, and we'll get into that in just a moment. And so we're going to look at four points, four things we look at and see from this text this morning. In our first point, we learn that we will not get all of our questions answered in this life. We will not get all of our questions answered in this life. In verses 16 through 17, Solomon says this, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, How neither day nor night do one eye see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Again, remember that Solomon has been on a journey to find the truth about life, its purpose and its meaning. 
He's been all over the place. He's looked at everything he could look at. He's done a lot of observing. And he's done a lot of learning. And so what has he learned so far? Well, he tells us here that it's difficult to figure out life. It's, it's a wearisome business that he's given himself to. It's really impossible to know for certain what God is always, emphasis on always, what God is always doing in this world. And on top of it, he tells us that there are so-called wise men in this world who think they know what's going on, who claim to know the answers to all of these questions, but what he says is they don't. They're really wise men, really smart people who say they have the answers. And his conclusion of looking at all this stuff is they don't. They have a clue about a lot of things, but they don't have a clue about everything. They might know some things, but they don't know all things because they cannot find all the answers to life. In many ways, this is God's plan for us. He's created us in his image after his likeness, but he hasn't created us to be him. And that's kind of the problem a lot. If we could like peel back the onion of a lot of our problems in life, a lot of our frustrations, a lot of our anger, again, think parenting, it kind of comes back to this. It's it's we really want to be God. We we really want to be in control of all things. We really want to be able to say something and have the power to just let it be or have it grow especially in people's lives. What we learn here as we struggle through this journey with Solomon is is we are not God. We, We are not him. He alone is God. He alone is the creator of all things. He alone is all powerful. He alone is perfect in all his ways. He alone is wise. He alone is all-knowing. We are not any of these things. He's perfect in all those ways. We we might be able to gain some wisdom, but we'll never be all-wise. We might know some things, but we never know all things. We might have a little bit of power, but we don't have all power because we're not God. He alone is God. The problem we face, though, is like Solomon, is is we want to know all things, don't we? We want to be able to get our life around, or our minds around life. We want to be able to make sense of everything. We want to be able to ask a question and have it answered in, in a way that satisfies our hearts, in a way that really doesn't take much faith, in a way that just, it just says, sight. We, we, we get uncomfortable with a little bit of mystery or we get uncomfortable with a little bit of having to just trust the Lord for who he is and what he says he's doing. But what we really want is, is we just want the answers. We want clear answers to every question we ask. And on top, on top of it, we, we really want these answers to be real simple. Again, maybe in the form of a tweet. We don't want to have to work really hard to get them. We just want it maybe in like a little quick little picture somebody posts on social media just says, oh, this is what it means to be reformed. This is is what predestination means. It's just, it's this. This is what God's sovereignty means. And and this is what he's actually doing in my life in this specific moment because it's just real clear. And God sent it to me in the form of a tweet and it just makes complete sense. 
But that's not how it works. This frustration that Solomon is feeling and the frustration we also feel in these situations, what they are, and I think this is what Solomon's trying to help us see here, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift from God that helps us realize we are limited. And not just limited, they're gifts to help us remember and be reminded of and to live our life based upon the fact that we are not God. He alone is God and we are not. We are limited in our understanding and this is the way that God has created it in his wisdom for us to know some things but not all things. For us to be people who walk by faith and not by sight. People who who trust Jesus and pick up a cross and follow Jesus based upon what he's communicated to us through his word. Now, if the Lord wanted to know everything, how big do you think this thing would be? But this is what he wants us to know. This is what he's revealed to us. And this is what he calls for us to give our life to in following him. It takes faith because we'll never fully know the mind of God. Nor will we be able to fully see all the works of God going on in this world and and how all of these things are being worked out according to his good purposes. We just get these really good verses that tell us that he's at work in all things for the good of those who love him. And that this work is somehow accomplishing really good things in our lives. And that verse goes on, if you were to read it, it tells what he's doing in in a general and specific way. He's calling us, he's saving us, justifying us, he's sanctifying us, and this all leads ultimately to our glorification. So all of his good is being worked out, Romans 8, 28 through 29, in that direction. We know that to be true, right? But what we want really is we want to know the answers to maybe, okay, how is this for my good? And and by that I mean things, whatever's bewildering you right now. It could be, how how is this for my good uh, when a husband and wife who really want to have a kid pray for a baby, work really, really hard to have a baby, ask people to be praying for a child, and, and they're unable to have a child. But the person down the street who doesn't want a kid gets pregnant right away and then just ends up having an abortion. How is that being worked out for our good? See, those are tough questions. Or how are my parents getting divorced? Or how is this working, this this really hard thing? How How is God working that for my good? His word tells us he is. And he even says, count it all joy when you meet various trials. And it's like, how could he call us to count something like a trial, a really hard trial? How am I supposed to count that for my good? How is that good for me? How is that good for you? And by that, what we really mean, I think, in the midst of that is, I want to know the details of how that works itself out. Well, we look at Romans 8, 28 and 29. We, we know the, the genera- generality, the principles of what God's doing. We know he's a good God who's all these things, and he is working for our good, and it's ultimately going to lead to this glorification. That's where we're called to put our hope and trust in. But we may never know the details of it. And that's part of God's plan. And so when you struggle there, just know that's a gift from God. That struggle is a gift because it's humbling. It's a reminder every single day, you are not him. 
but you desperately need him. And life without him is meaningless. It's meaningless. If you try to find meaning somewhere else, you're chasing the wind. And so it's a gift from God that we don't know all things. It's a gift from God that, that we struggle in the journey to, to figure things out because there's just some things we're never going to get our arms around. But we have these great biblical truths, God speaking to us through his word to cling to and to hope in that we might find joy in some of the hardest things we experience in life. See, mystery should lead us to a greater faith in God. And a more faithful walk in following Jesus. And I would say greater praise of him. I may not know, but he knows. This leads us to our second point where we learn that God has the whole world in his hands. As Solomon wrestled with the ways of God, he continued to struggle with what he saw. But what he saw in this next verse is that though things don't always make sense, and they won't, They all are in the hands of a sovereign God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. As he looked out at all the people in the world around him, the righteous and the wise, he recognized that Their lives rested in God's good and sovereign control. That's what it means to to be in the hands of God. It It means he's holding this thing together. This means all those things we know about God to be true. He's love. He's holy. He's perfect. He's creator of all things. He's all knowing. He's wise. Meaning he knows how to build this thing the way it needs to be built. They're all here. They're all in his hands. Nothing is outside of his good and sovereign control. The Bible uses the image, the hand of God, to illustrate and express God's power, his love, his care, his control. And we say things like, I need to lay this or that in the hands of God. What we're saying is, I I need to trust the Lord that he has this, that he's absolutely in control of it all. And it's a good place to put our lives And by that, I just mean our our faith because our lives are already there. That's what Solomon's trying to get across here. T.M. Moore says the following. He says, each one of us, without regard for what we've done in life or whom we know or what place we might occupy in our society, each one is in the hand of God. And he decides for each of us just what will be for us throughout our lives. This is where I kind of come up with that that thought and this, this thing I say to you every time I preach from Ecclesiastes is, is either God's in control or he's not. And by that, I mean, like, either you believe he, he is who we're learning, who he is in his word. He's this great God who, who's got his hands out and it's, it's holding all things together and our lives are in there. Either you believe that or you don't. And I think that just takes faith. And I think that's a journey we, we wrestle through because hard things are hard. It's easy to, to say, yeah, I'm in the hands of God. He's, he's blessed me. I just won the lotto. Didn't even play the lotto, but for some reason, I just won a billion dollars. Praise the Lord. That's the easy times. It's those hard things that I talked about a little bit earlier. It's, it's, it's when life doesn't go our own way. Do we believe that we're, we're, we're in the hands of God in those moments? Well, some would say, you are. 
that's where we live life. God, God is in control of everything. The whole world rests in the good and sovereign hands of God. And I'd say this to us as a church, trust his hands. Trust him. Trust that, that he actually knows what he's doing. And not just some of the times, but he knows what he's doing all of the time. But the problem here is, if you notice, is that this verse ends with some confusion, though. Solomon says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And so he's saying it's all in the hands of God. But, but what he's saying here is, is, as he looks at this, what he's noticing is that he's trusting everything's in the hands of God. But the question is, is God for me or is God against me? I know God's holding this together, but based upon what I see happening in the lives of the people around me, he's saying it's really hard to tell based upon the circumstances of life that I see people living, good people and bad people, to really understand and really believe that God is for me or against me. Because the thinking would be this. If God is for us, then, then there should just be nothing but blessings. Kind of like the prosperity gospel. If you're a good person and if you're really being loved by God, then you're going to drive a really nice car and you're going to live in a really nice house and you're not really going to get sick. And if you do get sick, you're going to get healed right away and you're going to live a life pretty much free of suffering. Well, that's kind of been blown up, right? That's what Solomon's saying here. Is it, it, it appears like bad things happen to good people. And it appears that good things seem to happen to bad people. And so he's just saying, everything rests in the hands of God. It's just hard to really tell if God is for me or against me. And this leads us to our third point. Generally speaking, God seems to treat everybody the same. Solomon writes this, verse 2, he says, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So as Solomon wrestles with, is God for us or is he against us? I can't really tell based upon what I see people walking through. There seems to be a lot of blessing and there seems to be a lot of suffering. So he's just saying it's hard to discern the difference between the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, by, by just looking at the circumstances of their lives. As far as Solomon could tell at this point as he's writing this, He's just thinking God treats everybody pretty much the same. This is, this is a general sort of perspective of life lived under the sun. Now, the day of judgment will be different for the wicked and the righteous people, but, but days lived out here on earth, what he sees, they're, they're pretty much the same. And again, this is general. So here's what he kind of means by this. It's like when it rains, who does it rain on? Everybody. Everybody who's underneath that cloud, they're going to experience rain. When it's nice and sunny, who gets to experience it? Everybody who's sort of living there. When, when a drought comes, who does it affect? Okay, when COVID comes, who does it affect? Pretty much everybody. Everybody will experience some good days and everybody will experience some bad days. 
They may be different in terms of degrees, but for the most part, all of us will kind of experience the ups and downs of life. That's, that's his reasoning. That's what he's, he's thinking through. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if once a person got saved and all they ever experienced was wins. That's kind of what we hope for sometimes, right? Like you see it, hashtag blessing, like look what I got, as if like the Lord just looked down upon us and said, you are, you are better than that person over there, so I'm going to give you this job. I'm going to give you this family. And they're like, ah, you're, you're just not a good guy, so I'm going to give you these kids. You know what I mean? We trust that the Lord's at work, but what Solomon is saying here is, and what he sees is, is, is everybody kind of gets treated the same. And he's got something real specific in mind here. But don't be confused. Solomon's not talking about fruitfulness here. He's not looking at a person's character. He's not looking at how a person responds to life's good days or bad days. He's only looking at what seems to happen to all of us as we live life under the sun. And to really drive this point home, he highlights this fact. And this is what he's thinking about. Everybody dies. The same event happens to everyone. Good people, bad people. Righteous people, wicked people. People who who speak an oath and people who shun an oath. The same event happens to all of us. This day of death is a reality for everybody. What we learn here is that we shouldn't judge the goodness of God and the love of God by the circumstances we experience in life. Now, God does a lot of things. He disciplines those he loves. Suffering is not really that that bad of a thing as you look at it in Scripture. It's bad. Don't wish it upon everybody. But in Scripture, God says he works through suffering, and he does a lot of really good things through it. And our Savior, Jesus Christ, did what? He suffered. And he says that we're going to follow in his steps as we pick up a cross and follow him, not to be surprised by it. But the same thing pretty much happens to all of us. And that same thing is death. It's a reality. We live in a fallen world, though. It's governed by a good God who's at work in all things, who's sovereignly in control of all things. And he's working out this good for our good. And it's all according to his good purposes and plans. This leads us to our fourth and final point, the thing we look at as Solomon's on this journey. And I just title it this, it's better to be alive than dead. I feel like that's common sense. That's kind of what he tells us here. He says, most people, though, I don't think they like to think about death. But if you've noticed, Solomon likes to go back there a lot. He likes to open the door, look at it, shut it, walk away, and then he just goes back there. And he shuts it, and he goes a different direction, and then he just finds himself again looking at death, and we find ourselves again looking at death because it's a reality. You can't ignore it. It confronts us all at some point in our life. There's no ignoring death. In his search for life's meaning, he's looked at the reality of death often and what it means for those who are still alive. Verse 4, he says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So sooner or later we all die. 
But as Solomon looks at this reality, he concludes that it's far better for us to be alive than it is to be dead. He tells us that those who are alive, they still have hope. So if you're breathing, you have hope. If you're breathing, it means your mind is still working. It means your heart is still pumping blood and life throughout your bodies. It means you still get to enjoy life. It means you still get to learn things. You get to think about stuff. You get to grow. You get to pursue wisdom. It means you're still on your journey, wherever it is God has you to be at this place right now. It means you still get a chance to trust God. You still get a chance to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You still get the joy of picking up a cross and following him, denying yourself, giving your life away as you trust completely in Jesus Christ. So to be alive means you have hope. Whether you feel it or not, you're still breathing. God's still at work, and this is a good thing. And to make this point, Solomon tells us that a living dog is better than a dead lion. I know we have a lot of dog lovers in here. I kind of like them. Okay, Kind of. There's a few in there I like. But when Solomon wrote this, he, he wasn't thinking about your dog. He wasn't. It wasn't like everybody had all these different dogs back then and everybody got to have them in their house and they just, they loved to feed them and they loved to open the back door and let them run out and take them on a walk around the cul-de-sac, all that kind of stuff. No, dogs back then were kind of like squirrels and rats today. They are. When I was in Myanmar, I don't know, several years ago, they had dogs. People didn't really love the dogs there because those dogs were wild dogs. Those dogs would just run in packs and eat whatever they needed to eat and stuff like that. And so when Solomon's thinking about dogs here, that's what he's thinking about. Think squirrels and think rats. And think about them getting into your house, how much you would love them. And he's just saying, that dead dog is better than, no, that living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay, and then to drive that point home, lions are pretty cool, right? Like when you go to the zoo, what do you go to see? Yeah, something like that. Lions. I, you know, whatever, they're there. But you're not going to see your neighbor's dog at the zoo. Like, we don't go to the zoo. We don't pay money to go see a dog. We go to see lions. Lions were majestic, and they still are. Highly recommend YouTube them eating something. That's what we really want to see, right? Chasing down an antelope and killing it and devouring. And so what he's saying here is lions are of extreme value, but they have no value if they're dead. That little squirrel or that rat has more value than the dead lion. It's far better to be alive than it is to be dead. Solomon tells us that the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. Again, this is perspective from under the sun. It's far better to be alive. It's far better to be breathing. I just think, I think there's an opportunity here just to be grateful. Because a lot of times we can be living life, we, we know we're alive, but we can find ourselves grumbling and complaining about the circumstances of life. And Solomon would say, no, 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 just, just remember, it's, it's far better to be a dog that's alive than it is to be a lion that's dead. Take a breath and just remember, you have hope. You're breathing, you're thinking. God has more work to do in your life. 
you have a Savior that you can trust, that you can follow. The dead, from an earthly perspective, he says, gain nothing and lose everything. That's what the world has to offer. Verse 6 closes by telling us that forever the dead have no more share in all the earth. It's better to be alive with hope than it is to be dead with nothing. Now, in closing, I want, I want to share another perspective. This is where I think Ecclesiastes, like, it, it works for us, but I'm so grateful that it falls in the context of the entire Bible. So I'm going to share the Apostle Paul's sort of perspective on living and dying that kind of sheds some light on this for us. This is from Philippians chapter 1, and this is in closing. He says this, for to me, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And then he says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. So Paul struggled. He had a, he had a perspective that existed on the other side of the cross with a resurrected Savior. And so as he thinks about living and dying, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We live with that same hope. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's better to be alive, Solomon would say, than it is to be dead. Paul would say, I don't mind living, but I would much rather be with Jesus. And I would say, that's our hope. We're called to live. As long as he gives us the grace to live. We don't fear death because I think we have this same perspective. To live is Christ and to die is gain. By the grace of God, let us stand firm in the good of this gospel. Let us live out our lives with every single breath. Trusting the hands of God. That he's good He's sovereign. Let us walk by faith as we keep our eyes on our good Savior, Jesus, who died to save us. Church, let us, let us live for the glory of God. And let us die when that day comes with much hope and expectation for what we have to gain through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, this morning and ask that you would just continue to change us, that you'd give us great hope, joy, passion for the things that you call us to do in this world, that, Lord, we would all look to you for hope, we'd all look to you for meaning, we'd all look to you for value, and when we don't have all the answers we're looking for, would we continue to look to you and trust Trust your good word. Trust in who you are. And continue to walk by faith. And Lord, to do that, we need your spirit and we need your grace. And so please give it to us this week. And bless us as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Thank you so much for being here. Uh, As you leave, may the Lord pour out his spirit upon you. May you experience his love in abundance. Have a great Sunday.